As I sat down to begin writing the sermon on Wednesday of this past week, I couldn't help but be aware that it was March the 3rd. And for me, that is a date that I struggle with year after year since it is the anniversary of my mother's death in a car accident that killed her and badly injured my father, who died then himself a year and 10 days later. 13 years have passed now since that fateful day, but the, the power of the date itself stays with me even after all this time. And each year I find that I still can't move through it without revisiting many of the feelings that I felt at the time. It's probably a reminder that we are never quite finished with our grief. We just keep turning the soil, hoping that somehow, sometime, something good and new will grow up from it. The focus word for this week is warned. And as I've been thinking again this week about the car accident and my mother's death and even more so remembering my father's slow and difficult recovery from his injuries, I've been thinking in particular about one incident from that year-long period of his recovery that featured the word warned. It's a story I have told before, but it applies again here. In the accident, my father was thrown about in the cars that went off the road and rolled over several times, and he sustained multiple numerous injuries, among them brain trauma. After the accident, he couldn't think the way he had been able to think before. He lost some of his reasoning ability. For a long time, he couldn't think sequentially. If I do this, then that will happen. If that happens, then either this or that will follow, that sort of thing. Because of his struggles with thinking clearly and not being able to manage his own life, he had a lot of anger issues as well, a lot of frustration. And he teetered constantly on the edge of paranoia, sometimes falling over that edge. I think a lot of it was the actual brain trauma, but maybe some of it was the way that his brain trauma limited his ability to deal with his emotional trauma. He couldn't remember what had happened in the accident. He felt guilty, but at the same time, he had no way of unpacking his sense of guilt, nowhere to go with it. His feelings swirled inside, but he couldn't make sense of them, couldn't think them through. One of the things that frustrated him was the whole list of limitations he faced during his recovery. He had been fiercely independent and self-reliant, and suddenly he couldn't even organize his own medications, do his own shopping, pay his own bills. Shortly after the accident, while he was still in the hospital, he had a seizure. He was treated with anti-seizure medication, and as a result of that, even after he had been discharged from the hospital and later on discharged from health care at Timbercrest back into his own home, his doctor told, them, told him that he was not allowed to drive for a certain period of time, months and months, and even And even that was dependent on him remaining seizure-free for that whole period of time. There were, of course, other reasons why he couldn't and shouldn't drive, but my father latched on to that particular piece of information and set for himself a goal of recovering his driving privileges as soon as possible. He marked the timeline for being seizure-free on his calendar and started marking down the days, never mind that it was as much his brain recovery that was in play as his seizure situation. 
Finally, as he passed the seizure-free period, it was determined somehow, either at the recommendation of one of his doctors or through some other portal, that in order to drive again, he would need to take and pass a medical driving assessment. I knew he was nervous about it. There was so much at stake from his perspective. Driving represented recovery and freedom and the increasing ability to manage and direct his own life. I went with him to the appointment. I drove him there. There may have been a written test, but if there was, I don't remember much about that part. What I remember was the actual driving portion. I wasn't in the car with him, but I was nearby, and some of what I remember I overheard, and some of it was told to me later. This is essentially what happened. He met the driving assessor. She had a checklist of things to go over with him, which he impatiently went through. He was eager to get to the driving to prove he could do it. So they got into the car, him in the driver's seat and her in the front passenger seat, and one of the first things he attempted to do was reach down for what he thought was the parking brake to release it. Why he did that, I have no idea, because, of course, almost no one engages their parking brake in a car with an automatic transmission when it's parked on a level surface. Maybe somewhere in the recesses of his memory, he was thinking back to times when he drove a car with a stick shift and we parked on the sharp hill, the steep hill in front of our house where he had lived for about 30 years before my parents moved to North Manchester, the house I grew up in. He always made sure when we parked out front that we left the car in gear and the parking brake was on. Anyway, he reached for what he thought was the parking brake release. The driving assessor said, don't do that. He looked at her and said something like, I have to release it. She said, I told you, don't do that. He argued with her again, I have to. Don't do that, she replied. He wouldn't listen. He reached down, pulled the lever, and of course it wasn't the parking brake release, but the hood release. The hood popped up. Now the driving assessor had to climb out of the car, unlatch the hood completely, and slam it shut again. She got back into the car. I warned you not to do that. I warned you. I don't remember whether the driving assessment continued or it ended right there, but I do remember that she did not pass him. And I also remember how angry he was afterwards. He felt that she had tricked him, that she had set him up to fail. And in a way, I suppose she had. When he reached for the hood release, she could have said, What are you doing? That's the hood release. Instead, she simply said, don't do that. But of course, when he reached down to pull the release and she said to him, don't do that, he could have asked why. And that would have opened up the space for an explanation. Neither of them navigated the encounter very well. Perhaps she saw him as one more elderly, obstinate person on her busy schedule. Perhaps he saw her as the next obstacle in the way of his ability to reclaim his life. She understood her words, don't do that, as a warning. He saw it as a challenge to his abilities and his independence. I warned you. In their Lenten reflections on this word for the week, warned, both Kathy Frymiller and Linda Hansen had some thoughts that helped me. 
Kathy wrote, perhaps being warned can also be a call to spiritual awakening as we respond with tears, with passion, with compassion. We may be able to find God in unexpected ways in the shattered pieces of our lives. I thought about that in relation to the warning that my father received. He was trying to put back together the shattered pieces of his life. If the instructor had understood that, would her warning have been different? It seemed to me that in that period of time, my father saw everything he was facing solely in terms of his physical road to recovery. Would more spiritual awareness have helped him as he responded to those physical obstacles? Linda, in her reflection, wrote, Many warnings are spoken, but pause for just a moment and think of a time when a message has come to you without words, a message that directly enters your heart. Those are the warnings we must pay closest attention to. They make the most difference in our lives. One of the difficulties my father faced in his recovery was that his brain wasn't working right. And at some level, he knew it. He sought salvation then in terms of reclaiming his thinking, reclaiming words and ideas. The access to his heart, the messages that directly enter the heart, took a back seat as he was striving for things to come more clearly into his mind. I realize now that that was one of the things that wore on me the most during his year of recovery. His need to sort things out in his head got in the way of my need to sort things out with him in our hearts. At least until the very end when finally he shifted from resistance to gratitude, from need for independence to embrace of connection. But it was a long and hard process and warnings seemed not to help very much. Care and patience were more powerful. In the scripture for today from Psalm 19, the word warned appears in this way. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Of course, those verses invite us to ask questions like these. What is the perfect law of the Lord? What is the dynamic of simplicity and wisdom, of righteousness and rejoicing, of warning and reward? You remember when Jesus is asked, what is the first commandment, or what is the greatest commandment, or what, was, what must one do to inherit eternal life, depending on which, which gospel account you're looking at. And you remember the answer, of course, love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law of the Lord summed up, the perfect law keeping a a deep and continuing 
commitment to love of God and love of neighbor, love that is honest, that is selfless, outward directed, holy and whole. If that's the nature, the essence of the law, then the warning should match, right? The warning should be about what is lost when love is left behind. Not a warning of punitive action or threat, but a warning of what will be lost. Warning, if you don't keep this love commandment, in the end and even all along the way, your humanity will be diminished. Warning, if you don't keep this love commandment, you may temporarily avoid the pain of disappointment and even betrayal, but you will not open yourself to the possibility of intimacy and joy. Warning, if you don't keep this love commandment, you will not enter into those spaces where God's image grows and expands and deepens in you and where your encounters with your neighbors fill in the wounded and broken parts of you. Warning, If you don't keep this love commandment, you'll become more selfish instead of more complete. Warning, if you don't keep this love commandment, you will miss the beauty and color and texture and delight of a life well lived. It seems to me that the best warnings, the most effective ones, match up with the spirit of what is desired for the one who is being warned. The best warnings, the most helpful ones, aren't the ones that first say no and then later on say, I told you so. Instead, the best warnings, the most effective ones, are the ones that share experiences and mistakes already made as a caution to not travel down the same paths. The best warnings are the ones that say from a place, from a motive of love, I made that mistake already, I hope you don't have to as well. The best warnings are the ones that say, here are the boundaries and here are the consequences. I wanted you to know before you make your decision. I wanted to warn you not because I want to control your life or direct your life, but because I care about what happens to you. After my father's experience with the driving assessor, he said to me in all seriousness, The next time, I want you in the back seat when I take the test. That way you can make sure the instructor is fair. Actually, you can be a witness when she is not. I just shook my head. I don't think they'll allow that, I said. But what was going through my mind was, no way. You couldn't pay me enough to get in the middle of that. My reaction was one of self-preservation, of conflict avoidance. I was having enough of a struggle with him at that point. I didn't need to be involved in one more point of contention. Now, looking back, I see it differently. I wish I could have warned him not to pull the release. I wish I could have warned him, not as a threat, but because of love. Please pray with me. We confess, O God, that we so often think we know best. And we would rather ignore the warnings of others who tell us they know better. But what if we could hear at least some of those warnings as expressions of love? 
warning. You need to take better care of yourself. Warning. You need to listen more closely. Talk less and listen more. Warning. Be careful about judging others by category or culture. Warning. If you want to please God, if you want to deepen your humanity as well as your spirituality, love your neighbor as yourself. Help us to open our ears, our eyes, our hearts, O God. Help us to learn not only from our own stumbles, but from the wisdom of others because of the love of others. Soften us, God, in the ways in which we warn and are warned. Let your love be at the foundation of it all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please join me in some moments of silent prayer and reflection. <clears throat>